0: It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is the Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kelly McCann. Dr. McCann is one of only 35 physicians worldwide to have participated in a residential fellowship in the program of integrative medicine at the University of Arizona, where she worked with Dr. Andrew Well. She is certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine and also board certified in integrated medicine by the American Board of Physician Specialties. Dr. McCann currently serves on the American Academy of Environmental Medicine and the International Society of Environmentally Acquired Illness, both of which aim to educate professionals and the public about environmental exposures. She lectures internationally on various topics, including mold and mycotoxin illness, Lyme and chronic infections, mast cell activation, and much more. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We are so glad to have you.
2: Thank you, Chloe. I really appreciate the invitation.
1: Yeah, of course. I love talking about all things Lyme, co-infections, mold, SIRS. So this is going to be a really great conversation, and I'm excited.
2: So I love talking about those things, too.
1: (laughs) Of course. Yeah, yeah. These things need to definitely become more mainstream. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. So I like to start out by asking, you know, what got you interested in this? What was your journey like?
2: You know, I always wanted to do holistic medicine. That's what we called it back in the day when I was first starting out in medical school and even before. And so that was the intention. I would originally thought maybe I'd go to acupuncture school, um, but I got into medical school, four medical schools, and so I figured I'd I just better go to medical school and figure out the rest later. And that's essentially what I did. And I always had a passion for understanding why something happened to someone. I remember being in, in residency, I think early on in residency, realizing that, you know, we're learning all these uh, lists of tables of differential diagnoses and how to treat somebody, but they, we never talked about why. Why does somebody get sick? What's unique about them that manifests in all these different illnesses? And I think it was that light bulb moment for me that I needed to do things a little bit differently. And I needed to see things from a a deeper perspective and to ask that question, not just of myself, but you know, in an appropriate time of each patient. Like, what is it that you think is is unique about you? Are there, you know, things in your history beliefs that you have um genetics that you have specific environmental exposures that you have that are going to snowball into what what we're seeing today so that was really the the underlying uh philosophy that I carried in uh to medicine with and then I I just was always curious about um Going deeper, looking for the root cause. I first did, you know, the integrative medicine. I wanted to have as many tools as possible. I did functional medicine. um, And then I discovered environmental medicine and realized that I really needed to understand what were all these chemicals that we were being exposed to. You know, and this is way before it became a hot topic of detox, right? This was in 2004, 2005, um, starting to learn about these things um, and recognizing how impactful the environment is on our health. From there... One of my colleagues in in a fellowship that I did suggested, hey, you need to look at mold because there's some overlap there. And so I discovered Rishi Shoemaker and went down that pathway to figure out, okay, yeah, mold is impacting a lot of people. And then when I started applying his uh, tools and and um, procedures, people weren't getting better. So I'm like, okay, what am I missing? Um and that's when I realized the chronic Lyme piece was huge. And as it turns out, I grew up in upstate New York and have my own Lyme story and my own mold story. My mom was bit by a tick when she was in seventh grade in upstate New York at a camp because she was from Albany. And she was little and she didn't know any better. So she had a turtleneck because the tick attached to her neck and she was really embarrassed by this thing on her neck. She didn't know what it was. She didn't know who to talk to. And, um, so I suspect that I got a congenitally acquired Lyme from her. Um, and then, you know, I was a mountain climber, hiker, um, rock climber, and I'm sure I got bit again when I was um, in high school and and, uh, college age. But it really wasn't until I was mold exposed that I became profoundly sick. Um, And only in hindsight did I figure out that it was mold. I was living in Oregon um, on the west side of Oregon where it rains a lot, not the east side of Oregon. And my clinic was a flat roof building. And I think that I was poisoned by mold in the clinic that I lived in, that I was practicing in there. Um, I, developed chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. I became profoundly depressed, but I couldn't tolerate any of the medications. Um, and I, and I ended up having to leave that job because I was, I was really too sick to continue. Um, fortunately I was able to move away and recovered. Um, but you know, in, in hindsight, that's where I think a lot of my health, uh, fell over the cliff. Um, and since then I think that moldy people tend to attract mold. And so I've had multiple mold experiences since then, uh, sadly. Um, but that really, that really helped, um, the direction of my practice. And so many of my patients now have chronic infections, they have mold exposure, you know, they have all the usual gastrointestinal issues, SIBO and uh, irritable bowel symptoms, food sensitivities, allergies, autoimmune conditions. Um, and then a handful of years ago, people started becoming really sensitive and they couldn't tolerate supplements, and they couldn't tolerate medications, and they had limited food that they could tolerate. And this is when um, I ran across Dr. Lawrence Afrin's information and read his book and said, aha, this is the next thing. Um, and in my in my perspective, it's really a total load idea. We've just reached a threshold where – Mold is making us sick. Environmental toxins are making us sick. Uh, Add in a couple of infections and our immune systems just can't tolerate it anymore. And the mast cells are on alert and uh, they're saying, you know, danger, danger is everywhere. And Those are the people that often end up in my practice. Um, So I had to figure out the tools of how to help them. And fortunately, we've been very successful at looking at the root cause and and also figuring out the best path forward for each individual. So there's my story. Oh, and I probably have some mast cell too after my multiple mold exposures. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I, I can resonate with a lot of your story. And even whenever you mentioned about detoxification being a hot topic, I, you know, it's one of those things that's like, this is not a detox for weight loss. This is a detox to get your life back. You know, this is a detox to to get your liver back up and working, get your immune system working again and not wake up feeling like you didn't even get any sleep, you know? So I can I can resonate with a lot of that. And even whenever you were mentioning the mast cell issue, I I agree there too. I think it's a huge deal where we have this like histamine bucket, which I've heard, you know, a lot of people use that analogy, but it just one thing after the other keeps piling up and Soon your body's like, that's it.
2: (laughs) Right. Can't take it anymore.
1: (laughs) Right. Yep. So I think that is actually a good segue into just going ahead and providing maybe an overview of mast cell activation syndrome. Could we just dive in right there?
2: Absolutely. Okay. Mast cells are part of our immune system. They are really, really important. They are bor- born in the bone marrow, and then they migrate to the periphery in our bodies, and they are the first line of defense. And they tend to line the areas between ourselves and the outside world. So they line our upper respiratory tract and our nose and our sinuses. They're in our mouth, the entire mucous membrane of our gastrointestinal tract. Um, they are on our skin. We have some that hang out near the nerves and around the blood vessels so that they can be positioned to seek out and fight foreign invaders. And so their job is really to survey the the area. And if they perceive a foreign invader or some sort of threat, they're going to release Chemical messengers, because they're filled with all these beautiful packets of inflammatory uh, chemicals we call mediators, they release these mediators into the local environment, and that sends a signal to the rest of the body uh, and to other mast cells and to other parts of the immune system alert, alert, danger is here, um, so that then the body and the immune system can mobilize and address that threat. So that's what mast cells are supposed to do. What happens in mast cell activation syndrome is that they've gone a little rogue and they have a misperception of what is a threat and what is not a threat. And so we start to have these unusual inflammatory histamine type reactions to things that we should usually, that we normally would tolerate, like our food, like, you know. Uh, certain smells or uh, the environment. Uh, People can develop sensitivities to sound and light and pressure and all sorts of things. And essentially anything that feels like a threat to that mast cell, to that nervous system um, becomes a potential trigger for mast cells in somebody who has this condition called mast cell activation. And it, it, it turns out that before the pandemic, there were probably 17,000% of the population, I'm sorry, 17% of the population had mast cell activation syndrome. And now post-COVID, uh, some researchers are speculating that it's cl- closer to 25%. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So COVID was one of the triggers uh, and the spike protein was one of the huge triggers in, you know, pushing people over that edge, uh, overfilling their bucket and triggering mast cell activation syndrome.
1: That's a staggering statistic. I, I had not heard that. That's crazy.
2: It is crazy. That's one in four people. That's um, amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you started naming some of these mast cell triggers. Can we dive into that just a little bit more so you were talking about like light sound maybe just elaborate on that just to show the audience how delicate you know these mast cells can
2: really be sure i think we can break it into two sections because there are the things that will trigger the mast cells um, more globally and then as people become more and more sensitive um, there are these little, what I would call more li- little triggers as opposed to root cause triggers. So in terms of root cause triggers, I have found that mold and Bartonella are probably the most important root cause triggers for pushing somebody into a mast cell activation syndrome picture where we can make that diagnosis. Um, Lyme also um EMF environmental chemicals of all sort. You know, it's really fascinating when you when you take a perspective on on history there have been doctors I call them the grandfathers of functional medicine, they are the environmental medicine doctors. The organization of which I'm a member, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine is a 50-year-old professional organization and the doctors who started that called themselves environmental medicine physicians and they were interested in multiple chemical sensitivity or toxicant induced loss of tolerance and these are the people who they would get exposed to some sort of chemical could have been a pesticide could have been some sort of solvent or volatile organic compound and these folks ended up with a chemical sensitivity People thought they were wackadoodles, right? Like that's you couldn't walk down the fabric aisle or the the soap aisle, the dish detergent aisle, in the in the grocery store because they would get sick. Um, and yet, I think that that was mast cell activation syndrome. We just we just didn't have that same name for it. Um, so it's been around a lot longer than two thousand and seven, which is when the first. Uh, articles were being published in the medical literature about mast cell activation. We just didn't know what was happening with the pathophysiology of multiple chemical sensitivity. But I digress, I'm sorry. So so back to those triggers, mold, Bartonella, Lyme, EMF, uh, environmental chemicals, um, those are probably some of the biggest root cause triggers. And then in terms of everything else, Um, food, of course, all sorts of foods. I mean, I have some uh, colleagues who take take care of patients who can't can barely tolerate water. They have to have a specific kind of water because there might be different chemicals. It hasn't been filtered properly enough, or they react to the minerals. Um, Many of my patients react to the excipients, so the inactive ingredients in the pharmaceuticals. Um, You know, when when I have a patient who comes in and they're on Zyrtec, uh, that gives me a clue, okay, or you know one of the h one blockers that gives me a clue they probably have some sort of allergy muscle, or they have an allergy to medication list that's you know this long uh because they've had reactions yeah most of most of the time they're not actually. Drug reactions—they are mass cell reactions to the inactive ingredients in the pharmaceuticals—and um, this is something that medical, the medical community, the conventional medical community doesn't really have any clue about, um, unfortunately. So those are those are a big trigger for for patients. Um, gosh, I'm sure there are many, many more, but <laughs> that's a good good uh, place to solve for that question. Unless you have more questions.
1: No, yeah, and this might be going on a little bit of a tangent, but it did spark some interest in me. So, when we do talk about like some of these things that we need for life, like like you're saying water, and whenever you are trying to kind of get root cause healing, you know, one of those steps is trying to decrease the histamine bucket, trying to calm those mast cells as much as possible. So I guess my question is like in those kind of more complicated cases where you need something to live but that is also adding to your your inflammation basically is there a strategy there that you just maybe push through and decrease
2: other inputs or yeah well, certainly if we're talking about water, I think that that's a non-negotiable, right? So right. <laughs> we have to figure out a way to get that water in somebody. Um, the more sensitive somebody is, the less able we are to do on a, you know, kind of um, medication supplement route right uh, yep. we're having to deal with food and i think for for people who are that sensitive um we have to have a way in probably not with the mast cells directly but more so with the the limbic system and the vagus nerve um okay. And really shifting, and maybe even the beliefs, right? Um, so, but it's not so much here as the physiology is so ramped up. The body is in what we call cell danger response to everything, and so we have to find ways that that work with each individual person that are going to calm them down. Um, it may be. Um, something like the Resimax, which is a vagus nerve stimulation device um, that has a that has a vibration, and you can you know put it on your feet. You can put it anywhere in your body, and that that calming vibration allows the nervous system to settle a little bit. It may be some breathing exercises. It may be a variety of different. Biofeedback devices. There's one called the Muse, which is a headband that I, I just love. I remember my um stepdaughter, <laughs> my stepdaughter was using it for the first time. And the, you know, there's a soft rain when her when her thoughts are coherent, and then it's a, a chaotic thunderstorm when they're not. Uh, but something like that to help. Um, the individual start to see how they can have more control over some of their reactions. Um, And it's always important to find a method that resonates with you. Because I think that ultimately the most important thing is to start to really reconnect with yourself, reconnect with your own internal knowing of what's good for you and not good for you to reestablish that trust in your own body that has become become lost really in the process of becoming sick. And so I always encourage my patients to really I'll give you, you know, twenty different things, and I don't want you to do all of them. I want you to pick out the one that that you feel most drawn to, because that's the one that's going to be serving. That's the one that you're going to do and participate in um, to really start to calm things down.
1: Yeah. So it sounds a lot like for these really sensitive individuals, it's almost like you're trying to instill practices that are affirming to your body, I am safe, you know, I am healing, I am on my way to getting better.
2: Yes. And,
1: I mean it it really truly feels like, you know, it's it's like a, a health affirmation, like a body, mind body affirmation that truly works because you're calming your nervous system and you are doing, you're doing the work and putting in the work for your vagus nerve, and you're you're really just trying to heal from a mental top-down kind of perspective.
2: Exactly. You know, and it it does depend on where somebody is at, right? But um, with other patients, because they're coming to me as a medical doctor, we may start, you know, with the with the medications, with the supplements, right? I need them to trust me. I need them to start to trust themselves. More importantly, that they've got this. This is their journey. You know, I'm I'm the guide. I'm the cheerleader. I'm gonna help them along their way, but they're the ones who have to do the work and to and to reestablish that connection with themselves, however that looks like for them. Um, so. I hope that helps.
1: No, absolutely. So I want to start diving into maybe some of these strategies for, you know, of course, less sensitive individuals. Like, do you typically kind of address that root cause first? Like you were saying, those root cause triggers, the Lyme, Bartonella, the mold. Is that where you would probably start?
2: You know, most of the time we have to start with calming down the mast cells and calming down the reactivity, um, that's really probably the most important place to start. While simultaneously figuring out what those root causes causes are, if we don't know, um, and then you know, depending upon the index of suspicion and the history, it very well may be mold, and we've got to make sure that the person is in a safe place. Very, very difficult to heal if the physical environment is not safe um you know separate from the belief that you're in a safe environment um we don't want to keep triggering uh say you have a gas leak in your apartment complex and it's not mold well gosh that's a really bad place to be and you're going to continue to be sick um unless we fix that gas leak right um so it's really multifactorial and simultaneous that we're identifying those root causes and then really trying to calm down the mast cell. Um, and depends upon the person's um, constitution. Can I start with uh, a little bit of mold detox? And what does that look like for that person? Um, if they have SIBO or gastrointestinal issues and mast cell and mold, you know. I got to fix their gut. Um, so we try again, try and calm things down, address the SIBO probably even before the mold. Cause what good is it if I'm, <laughs> if they can't eat anything cause they're bloated and miserable, uh, with SIBO. So, um, that's kind of how I, uh, proceed. And then only later do we start to really address the, the Bartonella, the chronic infection piece. Um, Sometimes addressing the mold itself, calming down the mast cells may be sufficient. Oftentimes it's not, but occasionally uh, people will bounce back much faster than, than we think. Um, I tend to delay viruses to the very, very end, because more often than not, they're they're not really a problem. I see things like Epstein-Barr more of a opportunistic infection. Everybody's had it by the time they reach adulthood. So who cares if you have some IgG antibodies to Epstein-Barr, you know, uh, let's say 49 times out of 50, it's not that. <laughs> Um but uh and then probably last would be heavy metals and environmental toxicants, um, in terms of aggressive targeted, uh, chelation, for example, I don't do heavy metal chelation until patients are 70% better. I just find that it's too hard. It's nutritionally depleting. It, it yeah. can really be very, very challenging for patients. And so unless they are, you know, as I said, 70, 75% better. We don't, we don't, I don't even look at it because I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. Um, A number of my colleagues will go and they'll run, you know, $3,000 on a battery of tests for people. That doesn't really make any sense to me because then people feel overwhelmed and um, anxious about the fact that they have all these things wrong with them. Uh, You know, we start chipping away at the things that are most important.
1: Yeah, no. It sounds like you're almost peeling away like the layers of an onion. And by the time you're starting to address something like the lime or the mold, the more bigger heavy hitters, your immune system's starting to maybe fire back up. So I feel like by that time you've you've taken so many toxins away, you've already started getting your body back to where it needs to be, and then your body's starting to use its natural healing abilities too. So. Yes. I, I love that approach for sure. And I did have one quick question before we moved on. So if you were addressing like say SIBO and this person has is very sensitive, has the mold, has the Lyme, maybe, you know, histamine issues as well, has to have a low histamine diet, you know, does that do you typically go to something like the elemental diet for SIBO? or because they're so sensitive?
2: You know, it really does depend on the person. Some people can tolerate the xyfaxin or the Rifaximin. Um, I find that that's actually pretty well tolerated by many people, even sensitive people. Um, And yes, I'll use the elemental diet. Um, It depends on the severity of the SIBO. You know, if if you have... um, Gas levels in the you know high 80s to 100, and you want to get done and better soon. It's really the elemental diet. You know, let's let's get her done right. Um, But uh, but each person has to walk through that journey themselves. You know, I'll I'll give them options, and then uh, they get to decide which option do you want. Do you want to do the herbal option and take you know. 25, 30 pills a day and make it maybe it'll take six months. Do you want to do the couple months of Zyfaxin or do you want to do the <laughs> three weeks of an elemental diet? Your choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, and I've heard a lot of good success stories with the elemental diet. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, I think that kind of transitions us into talking more about some of these dietary triggers of, like, higher histamine foods, you know, because that's one of those first steps you were talking about is calming those mast cells. So what what dietary approach? You know, of course, saying someone doesn't have SIBO, but...
2: Sure. Um, again, it really has to be personalized. I think that a low histamine diet, a low oxalate diet, a low salicylate diet, a low FODMAPS diet... Those are just the starting places. And from there, people have to become their own advocate. They have to become their own Sherlock Holmes and figure out what are the foods that are bothering you? In my practice, I do a variety of different immunotherapies. So for example, there's something called LDA or low-dose allergy therapy. It's taught by the American Academy of Environmental Medicine to practitioners. And it's a way, it was actually designed for use in the 60s and 70s in Europe, came to the US in 2002. And it's taught by these environmental medicine doctors that I was speaking about. And what they did is it came into being because allergists only care about allergies. They only treat IgE allergies. And if you have no allergies, whether you have mast cell activation, histamine intolerance, or just a lot of sensitivities, allergists have no idea what to do with you for the most part, right? Um, So LDA is a very simple way to treat using your own immune system to restore tolerance. So for example, um, they took a variety of different foods, um, and diluted them into, uh, dilute doses and then put them into a mix. And that mix can be administered in uh, sublingually or intradermally in the forearm. And then they took, um, all the different environmental allergens, dogs, cats, dust mite, trees, grasses, etc and they put them into one mix called the inhalant mix. You know, so if you have seasonal allergies, you'd get the inhalant mix. They even developed one called chemical mix for those folks who have chemical sensitivities like uh, reactions to formaldehyde or gas exhaust or tobacco smoke or, you know, perfume, things like that. <clears throat> and these would be administered every eight weeks to help retrain the immune system to calm down it's been a game changer it's truly amazing now when you first get the injection you can definitely have a reaction and there are certain things that you're supposed to do to avoid as many as much as you can the things that um, you know you have reactions to but can be very very helpful Um, the other form of immunotherapy is called sublingual immunotherapy or slit immunotherapy, and that one can be more targeted. So, for example, say somebody has a problem with, uh, the nightshade family, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, potatoes, there are, there is a phenolic, um, a phenolic component in those foods called piperin. And we can actually give people sublingually um, diluted doses of piperin to help restore the natural body's tolerance so that they can start to heal and eventually eat some of those foods again.
1: That's that's actually really cool. I have never heard of either one of those. I mean... That's really cool. So what are these doses like? Like, I mean, I'm sure the first one's a little scary for the, the patient.
2: Well, we call it sublingual immunotherapy, but for sensitive people, I have them start topically, right? So you can put it on your hand or your wrist or even on your foot, and there is some absorption that happens they're not quite homeopathic. They're somewhere between, um, you know, very dilute doses. Let's say it gets diluted. Um, you know, the difference between taking a bite of a tomato yeah. and this dose might be, you know, uh, minus 10 dilution or something like that, minus seven dilution. I don't remember the exact math, but- mm-hmm. yeah. And then once you get below minus 12 or 10 to the 12th dilution, um, that's when you are beyond Avogadro's number and now you're into the homeopathic range. So it's not quite homeopathic, uh, but very, very dilute.
1: (laughs) No, that's actually really fascinating to me. I'm, I'm really interested. I'll have to look more into that for sure.
2: Yeah, so, um, so I think what I meant to say with all of that is there are ways that we can test and there are ways that we can treat, whether you have histamine intolerance or or other sort of food sensitivities, and that is the best way to get somebody better, right? I can give you a, a rough idea, but if I could test you and treat you for your food sensitivities, um, just as an example, when I was mold exposed about six or seven years ago, I had been gluten-free, gluten-free and dairy-free for years, but all of a sudden I couldn't eat rice, peas, almonds, uh, apples, oranges, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, corn, uh, soy, and eggs. Did I say that? Anyway, a lot, a lot of foods, right? <laughs> um, and that was because of the mold exposure. It, it, all those mycotoxins broke down the intestinal lining. And I was eating a lot of those foods. And all of a sudden, I couldn't eat them anymore. Um, and I healed that almost exclusively with LDA and slit therapy.
1: Oh, my gosh. Now, what kind of testing? You were mentioning food sensitivity testing. Do you use like an IgG panel? I know there's some you know, debate on that, but do you find that helpful?
2: I don't find that helpful. You know what's the most helpful thing um, is, again, being your own super sleuth, right? So what happened was I would get bloated after meals. I got bloated after every meal. I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna figure this out. I would have chicken and rice and broccoli. I get bloated. The next night I'm gonna have chicken and broccoli, and sweet potatoes, and I didn't get bloated. Ding, 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 ding. Rice is a problem, right? Then I would do it again. So by the time I found a practitioner to help me do some testing, I already knew all my food sensitivities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it really comes back to checking in with yourself and just being in tune. Because Truly, that is probably the best form of testing there is anyways, is just exactly touching base with yourself. So I do want to ask before we move on, though, are there any tests that you do particularly use on a regular basis?
2: For food sensitivity testing?
1: Or, or just really, you know, when a patient comes in and you're thinking, okay, mast cell, mold, this, you know, testing... where
2: you are with that. Yeah. I I do a lot of testing because I do think it's important. Um, So in terms of mycotoxin testing, I will often start with a urine mycotoxin test. I prefer um, real-time labs. That's uh, the one that I have found to be the most reliable. Um, Occasionally, I'll have a patient who has an extremely good story, uh, you know. Known mold exposure. We do a real time lab, and they have nothing, nothing in their urine. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing in the body, right? Because we're looking at a urine specimen and their ability to excrete the mycotoxins. So then I have to look at a blood test looking for. IgG and IgE reactions to the mycotoxins. And that test okay. is called the My Myco Lab with Andrew Campbell. Um, so I, I, I'm definitely looking at mold in the vast majority of people. And just FYI, Medicare covers the real time lab. Not that you're a Medicare patient, but if there are any of your listeners out there, um, and I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Igenix is also covered by Medicare. Wow. You have to have a Medicare provider who's going to order the test, but I mean, that's a tremendous, uh, benefit to the patients who have that type of insurance or at that stage in their life. Um, so that's pretty common. I do a ton of blood work. You know, I, I was trained as a primary care provider, I can't really get out of that mindset of wanting to make sure that I'm looking at all of the things that can go wrong. I'm looking at, um, and also be okay. Right. Um, so I'm looking at your cholesterol panel. I'm looking at your inflammation markers. I'm making sure that you don't have an autoimmune condition, uh, vitamin D, iron levels, all of that. I do all of that. Um, in addition, I'm looking at things like clotting because I want to see if you have an increased clotting risk. Uh, this is, again, something that most people don't really think about, but lime and mold, Um, Bartonella can trigger uh, hypercoagulability or increased clotting risk. And then then you also have the biofilm with the bacteria too. So if you have a predisposition to clotting and you have these infections that are making these biofilms, those biofilms are even more resilient because of that hypercoagulability piece. Now, I don't know if it's the bacteria Grabbing the fibrin, which is the building block of the clot, or if it is the the person saying, "I'm going to keep this bacteria at bay and put you know these little building blocks of of clot there." Either way, the end result is the biofilms are more resistant to the immune attack to antimicrobials. Um, so we need to know that if we're we're dealing with uh, hypercoagulability. <clears throat> I also do look and test for mast cell activation um, in the people whom I'm suspicious. And the testing is very challenging. We know know that mast cells create uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of mediators, and we can test for maybe half a dozen, 10 at the most. We do not have. Uh, commercial lab availability for the vast majority of these mediators, which makes it look like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? Um, so I have a conversation with the patients. If they are local to me, I've worked out with my local hospital in Newport Beach. Their pathology department knows how to handle the specimens so that they are handled appropriately. Some of these mediators are so. Um, fragile, and that they will be destroyed if they're not drawn in a refrigerated centrifuge and transported in a refrigerator. The entire chain of custody to the specialty lab to have that uh, run on the machines. So, um, so it is a little bit of a hassle, and the practitioner and the the hospital has to work together to make sure that that can be done properly. Um, and LabCorp and Quest and the major labs don't have refrigerated centrifuges in the vast majority of their facilities. So it's not even feasible to do it properly. Um, That being said, I can order three things through blood that I check in almost everybody whom I'm suspicious of. Um, Histamine, tryptase, and chromogranin A. And although histamine is produced by other cells, not just mast cells, if people have elevated levels of histamine, that, you know, again, kind of gives me a clue. And if they have high levels at two separate times of histamine, to me, that's the diagnosis. And I don't have to do this crazy, challenging blood work, that plus the clinical history. True. Um, so I, I do do those uh, kinds of testing. And of course, looking at Lyme and chronic infections, um, all that too.
1: Yeah. So I know we only have a few more minutes to ask some questions. So I do want to ask
2: Mm-mm.
1: a little bit more about the supplements, the diet, the herbs, things like that. So, you know, when does somebody know when it's right to start reintroducing certain foods?
2: Good question. The best time to start reintroducing foods or or starting anything is when you feel relatively stable, right? Um, Nobody feels 100% terrible all the time. So you will have days where you feel reasonably okay. And there will be days that you feel Reasonably okay and courageous enough to try something new. And so on those days, that's what you do. Um, Depending upon where you are in your spectrum of healing, you're going to add something new that may be a new food, that may be a new supplement. And, you know, my suggestion is always take a tiny dose. You know, when we're Introducing supplements to people, many times patients are opening up capsules. They're taking their like, you know, tiny teaspoons—the one in sixty-fourth teaspoon—and and and doing that, or even a pinch, to see how it goes. And the first thing that you're paying attention to is, well, did I get worse? Did I get better? As long as you don't get worse, great. We'll keep going, right? Um, So that's really the the path forward. Uh, with adding anything in. There are so many supplements for mast cell activation, and there are inexpensive pharmaceuticals too. You know, some people have a resistance to taking things like antihistamines. They're fantastic. And you can really see very quickly how much improvement because it's a very targeted pharmaceutical. Um, and that's of benefit, right? So H1 blockers, Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, Zizol, and there's a prescription one called Clarinex. Um, H2 blockers, really, we only have Pepsid these days. There are a couple of other prescription ones. And then Europe and Canada have even greater lists. Um, And so oftentimes I'll start there if people are willing to do that. Um, And then in terms of Uh, other pharmaceuticals. Chromalin is one that's fantastic for mast cell activation. It blocks the mast cells from um, being triggered by whatever their (laughs) their triggers are. So it coats the gastrointestinal tract, coats the nasal passages. Um, There is even... At least at one point there was uh, nebulized chromalin, so that was great for people who had respiratory mast cell symptoms. Um, Ketotifen is another one of my favorites. This is only available as a compounded prescription in the United States or an eye drop. Um, and I've actually used the eye drops with great success in a handful of patients who have mast cell ocular issues. Um, so, those are the primary pharmaceuticals that I'll start with in terms of supplements. Honestly, I do muscle testing with my patients because oh, if oh. I have, you know, 60 different things that I can give them and i can make an intuitive decision we can decide which label we like that's pretty or the cost or better yet you know it's an it's another opportunity for me to empower patients to take ownership and to reestablish and work on that relationship with their own intuition so i'll teach people how to do it i don't want to be the source of their uh, I don't want them to come to me to do, a, you know, applied kinesiology. I want them to feel confident that they can do it themselves. And so we'll, we'll teach, I'll teach people how to do it themselves. And that just, that's a game changer in itself, right? Because now they have a tool that they can use on a regular basis. Is this food good for me today? Nope. Okay. I'm going to move on. Is this supplement good for me? Yep. Okay. I'm going to take some. I mean, how fantastic is that?
1: Yeah, I've I've read about muscle testing and, you know, I actually included it in um, my book that I just wrote. I thought it was really fascinating. Could we dive into that just a little bit more before we wrap up?
2: <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you want to know exactly about it?
1: I guess just where you know, how you implement it as a tool for for your patients and, you know, what they are actually doing at home, just for the audience
2: to see that this could be a tool. So it's a game, right? It's play. It's allowing yourself the possibility of, of experiencing something new. And, you know, There's no right and wrong. We're just going to see what your body says. Um, So I I try and preface it like you have permission to just be okay with whatever happens, right? Um, Sometimes when people um, go to a chiropractor, for example, they'll do the arm test where... It, they'll push the arm down when you're holding a supplement. And if you're strong, you'll you'll be able to maintain things. And that is a good sign. If you go weak, then that, that substance is not good for you. Um, but that requires somebody else. So what I have people do usually to start, as long as they don't have balance issues or POTS, is to stand up. And then really the most important thing that we establish first is what is yes and what is no. We can't ask yes or no questions if we don't verify what yes is and what no is. So the first thing we do, okay, <laughs> I, uh, I got my woo-woo hat on, I don't have my doctor hat on, right? Okay, I put my hand on my heart, put my hand on my belly, solar plexus area, stand with my feet close together, and ask my body, Um, show me yes, or what is yes today. And then usually I'll feel pulled in a certain direction, hopefully forward, that is optimal yes. If I go backwards or side to side, um, that means that my energy is off. I might be, you know, a little anxious, I might be stressed or what have you. And so in order to reset that, take a few deep Breaths. You can do some march, you know, kind of marching in place, where you're um, essentially doing opposing arms and legs, right? Um, or you can do some tapping, again, to try and just calm down that nervous system and shift it into parasympathetic, which is where we're going to be able to access our intuition. And then once we get a yes, uh, you know, show me yes, and you move forward, then we can start asking all the questions. Um, and then when I'm taking a supplement and I'm trying to muscle test it, let's just say I'll take the supplement, I'll you know put it at my belly, and then I'll say, okay, is this good for me? And then if I move forward, yes. And I'll, have, I'll do it with the patient so they don't feel so silly. Um, and usually it's like, oh, that was so cool.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. I I mean, I was always – wondering because I had heard about the arm testing and I was just curious, you know, how you did that on yourself. So that's why I wanted to ask, but no, I mean, I'm an advocate for just learning as many different tools as possible because the more, you know, the more you can see what works for you, you know, of course, working with a practitioner, but just as many tools in the toolbox is always the stance I like to take.
2: Absolutely. And there are a couple of other ways, you know, if people have balance issues or they just don't feel confident in the sway test, they can use a pendulum. There is the kind of ring test where you're holding your fingers close together. And um, if you're strong and able to maintain that bond, then that's yes. If your finger can break out, so that's yes, that's no. Um, And you can get very sophisticated information from this. It's really pretty impressive.
1: I love it. I love it. So, I guess we we probably have time for just one teeny tiny question before we wrap up. So, we'll talk about sleep cuz I know that is just huge for really anyone with chronic illness, but specifically mass activation syndrome. So, Can you share any insights on, you know, how to improve sleep quality, even like maybe HRV
2: or, yeah? Um, Sleep is a huge issue. Had been for me too. That was one of my symptoms of mold exposure and probably mast cell and food sensitivity. So yes, I completely understand. Um, And there are many, many things. Lifestyle, of course, you know, low blue light no screens, uh, all of that um, is important. Morning light, exercise earlier in the day, etc. cetera. Um, and then there are a ton of supplements. I mean, really, it's the brain on fire. And the more on fire your brain, the more often difficult it is to settle. Um, so we need to do the things that are gonna to calm down that inflammation, which is why we're going through all these steps and the root cause and et cetera, et cetera, right? But um, I love magnesium. Um, I find that the vast majority of people are magnesium deficient. And so most everybody needs magnesium. And magnesium is not a bat. It is not gonna be the end all be all and get you to sleep, right? Um, Many people need additional things on top of that. Melatonin can be work, work. well for some people. Um and there's some people looking at much higher doses of melatonin uh for, you know, antioxidant protection, anti-cancer. Again, not a huge game changer for the vast majority of my mast cell patients, but as an antioxidant, not a bad idea. Um, personally, 5 HTP was the game changer for me. Um, I had no idea, didn't really make serotonin very well, and the mold exposure just diminished my serotonin levels. Um, You know, I'd had like a melancholy for many, many years. 5-HTP, all gone. It was fantastic, life transforming. Um, Doesn't always work that well for everyone, but you know, for those people, it's worth trying. And Then there are a ton of herbs. Um, I do also like L-theanine. I think L-theanine can block uh, glutamate, and that's very helpful. GABA is tr- tremendously helpful for some people too. Um, there are a couple of supplements um, that I've put together that I really like that are combinations of herbs and L-theanine. Magnolia is another one. Um, valerian is great too, although it's a little stinky. <laughs> um, I've been starting to use oxytocin for sleep too. Oxytocin oh. is the cuddle hormone. Um, it is a profound anti-inflammatory. I mean, just think when you're when you feel safe. When you feel loved, when you're being hugged, how amazing do you feel, right? True. Yeah. Let's take it in a pill form. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I, and I never heard of being able to take that as a, a supplement.
2: It's not a supplement. It is a it is a compounded prescription, but. It, It's it's amazing, Um, yeah. it's Sixty units at bedtime. Um, I went from getting up, you know, one to two times a night to mostly sleeping through the night these days. So I love oxytocin. Um, And then you know, for females, perimenopausal could be not enough estrogen, could be um, not enough progesterone. So thinking about that whole person is also important. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that is a perfect place to go ahead and wrap up the episode. So thank you so much for coming on today and talking about all this. You provided so much great information. So thank you.
2: You're welcome, Chloe. My pleasure.
1: And thank you to our audience for tuning in today. We are so glad that you did. And we will see you in the next one.
0: The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, the Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.